This is part 19 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one, so if you haven't heard that, go back. and the Rider. Part 19. The Closer. Peter Quinnell Live rose from the soft grass and cupped both hands around his mouth. Hello? He shouted. Who's there? He strained to detect where the sound of the rider was coming from and what, in fact, they were riding. There was no answer aside from more rustling. It grew louder and more deliberate. Please, Peter tried again, his voice nearly cracking. Who is it? There was still no answer and Peter felt his hands grow hot and thick. He reached into his bag and felt for the gun. He stood up and held it behind his back. Show yourself, he barked. From the low side of a ridge, a young police officer trudged nervously. In one hand he held a phone. He'd recognised Peter Quinnell live from his local news report. He remembered him as a person of interest in the city. He'd watched the video where the man who looked like Peter shot the man with the odd goat legs. He was connected with the Husky Boys, who were connected with everything in the town, and in some ways everything beyond the town as well. He chatted with them. They had told him where to find Peter. Are you Peter Quinnell? He asked nervously. Peter stared at him. Why? I need to uh, arrest Peter Cornell, he stammered, looking at his phone. Uh, Hang on, hang on. He held his phone up in the air and waited a few moments. In a voice that sounded like he wanted to cry, he said, I don't have any reception. The the cliff, maybe, Peter said, momentarily hypnotised again by its shimmering, impossible-to-focus-on surface. When he looked back, the young cop was now tapping at his phone. On the screen, he typed, I found him. I'm with him now. I don't know what to do. And clicked submit. Almost immediately, there came responses. Shoot him. (laughs) Haha. Shoot. Arrest him. Shoot. Peter felt his anxiety rise and rise. What are you reading? He asked, reaching one hand out to the cop. The cop recoiled as though he'd forgotten Peter was there. State your name, he shouted. Are you or are you not Peter Quinnell? Peter stared at the cop and a great wave of resignation rolled through him. Exhaustion dragged at his shoulders. It's Peter Quinnell live, he muttered. It's not Peter Quinnell. The cop passed his gun from one hand to the other and wiped his sweaty palm on his shirt. Are you... Fuck, fuck! He shouted. His hands shook as he pulled his phone from his pocket and typed, Says his name's Peter Quinnell live. Are we sure this is the right guy? 
Behind his back, Peter clenched and unclenched his fingers around the handle of his gun. On the phone, real name is Peter Quinnell Live, wrote Mike Events 001. The cop's phone went back in his pocket. He lifted his left hand to cradle the stock of the gun and pointed it at Peter. I'm going to need to take you in, he said. I need to arrest you. Put your hands where I can see them, please. Peter didn't move. Hands where I can see them, the cop repeated. Peter looked into his eyes. Listen, he said. Listen. Can you hear it? The cop felt hot tears well up. He fidgeted with the gun. Hear what? He asked. Horses, whispered Peter. He closed his eyes. Wild brumbies of the grasslands flying by on hooves as tough and hard as iron. Their hides ripple in the sun. They're just over that ridge. He pointed to illustrate. We could see them together, Peter offered. Just for a moment. Beautiful creatures. Could we? He gestured up the hill once again. There were no horses. The hillside was silent. But the idea was lovely. And now he was here, the young cop wanted desperately to believe that this strange man on this strange hill with one hand behind his back could himself see an ending to their interaction that wasn't a standoff. Here on this exposed ridge, the cold breeze whistling through, he remembered that he was alone, that there was no backup coming and he didn't have as many of the facts at hand as he might have liked. With a pained expression, he lifted his phone up to take a picture of Peter Quinnell live, who whipped the revolver out from behind his back and shot one bullet, which passed through the mobile phone and clipped the young cop's neck. The phone's glass screen exploded in a coronado of razor splinters that lodged in his face. He sank to his knees, the blood gushing from his neck and already welling around the base of the hundreds of icicle splinters. He glugged and gasped and toppled face first onto the grass. As his hand holding the gun hit the ground, his finger contracted and fired a single bullet that clipped Peter's ribs. Peter shrieked with pain. His legs buckled and he sank to his knees. The young cop lay face down, less than a metre from him, still drawing in howling, ragged breaths. As Peter bent forward, trying anything to ease the roaring pain in his rib, he realised the cop was moaning something over and over. Peter leant forward. The cop looked at him with one wild eye. My sister, my sister, he choked. Peter felt a fresh new panic. Well, what? He barked, half crying. What about your sister? What? The cop reached out a blood-soaked hand and gently touched Peter's face, then collapsed face first onto the ground. In the same instant, an ear-splitting crack sounded and the white cliff was gone. Where it stood, the green hill now rolled gently down towards scrubby bush and many kilometres away, buildings and shops. Peter felt the cop's blood drying on his face and he tried to wipe it away. 
It had already begun to congeal. It was thick and pasty, and when he scrubbed at it with a hand, he found that he mainly succeeded in smearing it over more of his face. His hand started to shake and he staggered a few steps, then sank to his knees and stared at his bloody fingernails in terror. What was to be done? He scratched frantically with his fingernails. It was evidence to have a dead man's blood on your face. Evidence! But then imagine how it would look to rejoin civilization, not just wounded and stinking, but daubed in blood. It mustn't happen. Peter knelt forward and rubbed his face against the grass. After ten seconds he straightened up and noticed with satisfaction that the tiny green blades had succeeded in scraping off a patch of red. He tried it again. The same, but less. Not to worry, he found a new patch and spat on the ground. This time when he stopped to inspect the grass he found a larger red smear where he'd rubbed it. He had no way of looking at his own face to accurately gauge the success of his method, but he continued for 20 minutes more until his face grew sore and his back grew tired. Then he turned around and sat and looked down the valley towards the town. It looked like it might be 15 or 20 kilometres away. He painfully picked himself up and began to lumber down the hill. After an hour of plodding, he reached the tree line. He realised for the first time that he had no real way to make sure he was heading in the right direction. Now he was amongst the twisted gums and scrub the town ahead couldn't be seen. He didn't have a phone or a compass. But what choice did he have? He'd somehow made it through one freezing night. What were his chances of surviving another? No roads could be seen. He kept walking. Had the town been north, he wondered? The more he thought about it, the more sure he was that he was right. The sun had been on his right as he'd begun to walk. Now it was overhead and sinking down to his left. Yes, he was headed in the right direction. He felt a new surge of confidence and quickened his pace. An hour later, maybe, his sun-guided picking through the scrub led him onto a fire trail. He was as good as saved. He felt jubilant. He walked on. Now, without the preoccupation of finding his way through this featureless bush, he began to think again about the young cop. Reflexively, he shook his head. Sad. Nothing to be done about it. But something was different this time. Why had he pulled the trigger and fired the weapon? Peter knew that the policeman wasn't going to shoot him. He knew it instinctively, as truth. He'd known it at the time, and he knew it now. He couldn't call it self-preservation. It wasn't like the other times, with the Greek, and with Cynthia, and with the fawn at the supermarket. It wasn't like the freakish creature in the road, or the gang leader Chuck Pernod in Albury. It was different to the red-headed youth. When he itemised the list of people he'd been responsible for the deaths of, he felt nothing. Each of them was able to be rationalised. Accidents, unaccountable for. Perhaps a self-defence argument could even apply. But this was different. And why had he moaned for his sister? Why did he have to do that? And why had Peter shot him? He knew the answer, he realised unhappily. He had fired the gun because he couldn't handle another inconvenience. His journey to the desolate hillside had already been too fiddly and exasperating, and rather than endure another kink in the tail, he'd shot a police officer to avoid being arrested. Now he really was a crook. 
He stopped and leaned against a tree and began to sob, big gasps of self-pity. Each one felt like a knife in his broken rib. He screamed with the pathos of the whole thing. He'd become the murderer that the newspapers would, he assumed, have already splashed over every front page. The prophecy had come true. Oh, it's true. It's true. Oh, it's true. He wailed. He'd draped himself over a tree branch and bawled. A while later, spent and dehydrated, he slithered off the branch. Wearily, he picked up a stick and began to plod his way along the trail again. The sun had begun to sink low in the sky and he noticed the glow of electric lighting up ahead. But the looming civilization didn't feel like sanctuary anymore. With each step Peter took, the lights ahead seemed to illuminate a single idea, horrifying in its simplicity and as easy to avoid as the town itself. He must turn himself in. The trail behind him was dark and forbidding. There was no real choice. Peter Quinnell Live had never before grappled with such irrepressible conscience. At other times in his past when he'd had cause to question his own character, he'd found it enormously easy to excuse himself from any true introspection by simply overemphasizing the significance of outside factors in whatever had gone wrong. But try as he might to rationalise them away, the facts of his encounter with the cop stood bold and irrefutable. His eyes welled with tears again, and he tumbled clumsily down one sloped side of the fire trail. He came to rest against a tall, thick termite mound, a metre across with a hollow in the middle. He nestled sulkily against it and closed his eyes. Just a little rest. He awoke an hour later in the early but complete dark of midwinter. He was shivering and light-headed. As he unclasped his arms from his chest, he felt warm blood seep down from his stomach. He groaned and stood up, nearly falling over again straight away. He reached the trail and found the stick he'd been using to support himself. Now the glow in the sky from the town filled the air. It couldn't be more than a kilometre away. With great effort, he stumbled towards it. Peter Quinnell Live emerged blinking from the bush and found himself on the outer edge of a suburban shopping village. It spread extravagantly around an intricate car park. It wound and sprawled in an abstraction of luxury, horrid fake Tuscan stucco propped up by taut concrete columns connected by paths of hard-wearing low-gloss peach and teal tiling. Each of the several dozen single-storey businesses tucked underneath, slightly too small and bare for the generous space leased by their proprietors. It was 5.30, so the lights had come on. Across the car park, they lit orange glare on the roofs and windshields of Hyundai Sonatas and Toyota Land Cruisers. They looked like tiny fires of hell. The shopping village had a medical specialty, as some far-flung suburban centres did. There was a podiatrist, an ophthalmologist, an imaging centre, a place that did sports massage, a GP's office. Peter staggered from the dark of the shrubbery and into the harsh car park light and saw the assortment of familiar clinical logos. His heart leapt. He moaned in gratitude and the sound reverberated through his sinew and bones and he spasmed with the pain. He clutched his side in agony and when he drew his hands away, he felt the chill of cooling liquid on them. 
He stared at his hands. The orange light made the blood look black. Oh no, he muttered. It hurt to talk and he winced. Oh no, he mumbled again, this time louder. It hurt more. He clenched his teeth and barreled forward. He approached the optometrist's office and the middle-aged woman inside turned the lock in the door and retreated into the back office. Inside of physiotherapists, a row of people sat on hard plastic chairs against the wall, staring resentfully out of the front window as Peter stumbled into frame. There was a woman with a very thin head. Next to her sat a middle-aged man with an enormously red face and swollen eyelids who eyeballed Peter angrily. There was a young boy with crutches and a face full of scabs. Peter lurched towards the door handle, but it wouldn't turn. It was 5.30 and the physio had accepted its last patients for the day. Peter jiggled the hand desperately and the people waiting inside glared at him. The small boy shook his head. In the glass, Peter caught a glimpse of his reflection. His hair was wild, thick with leaves and dirt and strands of grey spiderweb. His face was green from rubbing it on the grass and flecked with brown, dried blood. His clothes were filthy, stinking and torn. A dark patch of blood covered nearly half of the front of his shirt. He wailed and reached out a hand to steady himself on the glass. It left a bloody smear. The people inside rolled their eyes. He turned and staggered a little further onwards. Inside the pathology place, the receptionist stared passively over the counter at Peter. Please, he begged hoarsely. He slumped against the glass, transferring another body mark. She pursed her lips and reached for the phone. I'm calling the police, she declared loudly. Further up, the walkway entered a small sort of arcade as a second story built up overhead. A huge glowing sign in a strange typeface read, A burning bush, an aching tooth. The sign was too much for Peter to understand. His gaze drifted downwards to the shops. Over the optometrist was a sign in the same typeface. A million boys in radiant youth. Then the physio and the pathologist. An old house strangled up with vines. The headless ghost who haunts the roof. Then other businesses with signs of different size and brightness, but the same font and strange nonsensical sort of name. A yawning pit, a sunken booth. Foals with broken heads and spines. A chart with points and bars and lines. A bricked up dungeon full of wine. The earth was rough, but now it's smooth. The last one hung above a clinic of some kind. Peter swung towards it, lurching painfully, and a small measure of blood splashed out of the hand he'd cupped around his wound. As he stepped out towards the clinic, his foot found the blood and skidded. He fell heavily. His senses exploded as his face hit the tiles hard and he recoiled, then screamed with the pain. He lay helpless on the ground, waiting for the agony to subside. He panted. He listened to the panting and found that it helped. After several minutes, he rolled cautiously on his hip to the side without the wound. He extended an arm out to prop himself to a sitting position, then rolled forward until he could place both hands on the ground and stand up. Inside the physio, the waiting people had risen to watch. Their breath made fog patches on the window as they stared at Peter. 
As he looked at them, they looked away sharply. He staggered on, arms swinging loosely in front like an injured ape. His head pounded. His eyes felt as though, with one extra milligram of pressure, they'd pop completely out of his skull. Peter heaved painfully towards the clinic, and as he did, a middle-aged doctor with rimless glasses and a stethoscope around his neck flipped the sign on the door from open to closed. Peter placed one hand on the glass. Please, he wheezed pathetically. The doctor raised a phone to his ear and shook his head coldly at Peter. Peter could see the doctor's lips moving. He stared helplessly as the man spoke, eyes alternately focusing on Peter and staring into the middle distance. Gradually, Peter's head grew heavy and he lay down again, his head on the side of the tiles. He stared at the horrible reflection. Drool dripped from the corner of his mouth and he could neither stop it nor find a reason to care. The doctor hung up the phone and approached the door. Peter felt panic well up in his throat. He had to get help. He'd crawl through the door of the doctor's surgery now or they'd find his blood-drained corpse the next morning. He raised one shaking hand to plead with the doctor, who flashed him a sudden smile and said, Peter Quinnell live, come on in. When Peter was a boy, there was one summer in which his family's farm had been threatened by bushfires. For weeks and weeks, choking grey smoke had lain low over the landscape, sneaking into everything, making the people claustrophobic and on edge. The cattle had also become anxious. Peter's job was to soothe them. Every morning at dawn, or at least when the dawn should have been if it wasn't for the smoke, Peter trudged out to the stockyard with a bucket of oats and tranquilizers from the vet. He'd whisper to them and feed them handfuls of oats that he mixed pills into. After several weeks, the cattle began to grow thin from their reduced diet. They spent all day sleeping in the barn instead of browsing the grass in the paddocks, and Peter's parents had noticed they were becoming gaunt. So he upped the amount of oats they were to be fed each day. Instead of one bucket, shared, they'd eat five. Then the number was raised to 10, then 20. Peter's routine took hours. To help the boy, Peter's parents hired a Serbian labourer who'd recently settled in town. His name was Bozidar. He was silent and deferential, with a thick neck and a small head with curly black hair. He had escaped the war. He had somehow lost an eye during the war. He had one regular eye and one small dark hole with an eyebrow that drooped forward, making him look like he was constantly winking sadly. Once Peter Quinnell Live asked him how he'd lost the eye, he'd grinned at Peter, sat down on the ground and stretched out. He'd put his hands behind his head and looked up at the late afternoon sky. It's funny, he'd said. I don't know. It happened in the night. I went to bed with two eyes and woke up with one eye. At the hospital, they wouldn't tell me where it had gone, but I think I know. He'd sat up in the grass. The night I lost it, I dreamt that it rolled away. I remember the dream very well. I was lying in my bed and it rolled out of my head and down, boing, 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 onto the ground. I could still see out of my eye, you see. I could see what it saw. It rolled out of my room and then out of the house. Down the front steps and into the road. 
It was the night time, but it was busy because of the war. The army had turned on floodlights everywhere. It rolled down the street and a soldier picked it up and looked at it. He stared into it. I could see his face so close. He put it in his truck on the dashboard, looking out. As the sun started to come up, he drove into the forest with some other soldiers and they sat on the rocks and drank beer. Then, he leaned in close, a forest witch appeared, very old, full of evil magic. She cast a spell on them that made them kill each other. One of them drove the truck on top of the fire and then, boom, that's it, dead and my eye gone. When he finished his story, he wiped his remaining eye, then laughed hoarsely. Look at me, he'd said to Peter, weeping over a goddamn eye. Peter looked at him with disgust as a thick, dirty stream of liquid flowed out of his empty socket. Bozadar arrived early each morning in an old Mitsubishi hatchback and fed the cattle in silence. At around 11 o'clock, he went and sat down on an old tree stump and ate three pieces of thick brown bread that he smeared with spoonfuls of mustard and ate with chunks of Balkan salami that he cut with a thick, sharp knife. One morning, Peter Quinnell Live rode his bike out to the dam to silently sit on a rock and dangle a tied-up stocking toe full of spam in the hopes of catching a yabby. For an hour he sat, gazing listlessly into the grey shroud that filtered out the trees and the sky. Suddenly, Bozadar appeared from between the trees. He leaned heavily against a trunk and shouted hoarsely a string of words that Peter was too terrified to understand. He held up a fist, slick and red, and shook it at Peter and shouted again. No, you idiot! He shrieked. Peter, shocked at the man's sudden appearance and furious at being insulted, dashed sobbing to his bike. With trembling hands, he mounted it and pumped the pedals until he was up the embankment and down the track. When he finally arrived home, pale, sweaty and trembling, he told his parents the Serb was crazy and had tried to attack him. His father swore and grabbed the rifle from the garage and set off down the trail towards the dam where he found Bozadar slumped against a tree cradling his forearm, drenched in thick, dark blood from a deep knife wound. Peter's father pressed a thumb against the artery in his neck, and Bozidar twitched and turned his head slightly. His mouth curled in a smile. Then he flopped forward and didn't move again. A few days after the ambulance had taken his body away, Peter found Bozidar's metal lunchbox in a clearing. The blade of the salami knife was still where Bozadar had let it fall from his hand after it had slipped and cut him. It was covered in ants and thick blood. Peter threw the box and the knife in the dam.
When Peter Quinnell live awoke, he was in a bed, swaddled in clean white sheets with a drip in his hand and a big computer next to him that beeped once per second. The room had four walls, painted white, but a warm cream white, not sterile, with lovely dark blue skirting boards and a window frame through which he could see trees and a brilliant blue sky. Had he died? Was he in heaven? Did they have hospital in heaven? Maybe hospital was heaven, he thought. Hospital was pretty nice now that he thought about it. Convenient and whatnot. Very comfortable. He allowed his head to flop back onto the pillow. The architraves on the ceiling were fantastic. Very art deco. There was a gentle tap at the door. Peter jolted upright again, suddenly nervous. If this was heaven, who was on the other side of the door? Was God about to walk in? Did God knock? The handle turned. It wasn't God. It was the chairman of Five News who smiled radiantly at him as he entered, escorted by a gorgeous pair of lawyers. The lawyers were tanned and muscular and wore well-fitted corporate attire. The chairman stood at the end of Peter's bed and smiled silently a little longer. My boy, he said at last, it's good to see you again. He paused and smiled again. Nice to see you too, Peter stammered. You've been gone a while, the chairman beamed. We've missed you. Peter's heart sank. He hated to let a man as friendly and generous as the chairman down, particularly when so much of Five News's financial outlook rode on his personal brand. Um, Mr Chairman, Peter mumbled, there's something I need to tell you. Not at all, the chairman barked cheerfully. It's all crystal clear. Judith Senyol did the right thing and admitted she was the one who pushed the unfortunate gentleman in front of the train. Peter gaped at him. As for the business in Albury, local law enforcement are grateful for your assistance, the chairman reported, gesturing over his shoulder for a manila folder from one of the lawyers. He began to flick through it. There's more, Peter croaked. There was the young man in the supermarket, with the hooves, and the thing I hid with my car, and the young policeman. I shot him. He asked for his sister. He started to cry. He had a message for his sister, but he died before he could say it. The chairman rose to his feet and put a hand on Peter's shoulder. None of those are real, he said soothingly. Forget about them. Peter looked up at him through tear-filled eyes. What do you mean they're not real? He croaked unhappily. They're real. They're all real. I killed them. I saw their blood. I smelled it when they shit themselves. The chairman sat gently on the bed. The shit doesn't matter, he told Peter. If there's no police report, there's no shit. There's no blood. Do you understand? It didn't happen. We trust the police to keep track of things like blood, Peter, he said with a kindly smile. Have you ever heard the expression, history is written by the victors, Peter? That's what's happening. The papers will write about the police reports, Peter. And you might find yourself cheered up to read what they've written. He held a hand out behind him and one of the lawyers drew a wad of newspapers from a satchel and passed them forward. The chairman tossed them into Peter's lap. The headline of the first read, Former Five News Chief Guilty of Manslaughter, emblazoned over a photograph of Judith Senyol looking haggard and suspicious. Beneath the fold, Peter read, TV Networks 5 and 12 merge, the winners and losers inside. And there, in grainy newsprint black and white, was Peter's press shot with the caption, Winner, Peter Quinnell Live. 
The next newspaper led with News Anchor Heroics Overshadowed by Albury Tragedy. The picture was a sepia-tinted still from his cross with the regional news network just after the death of Chuck Pernod. There were also stories about Judith's predicted prison sentence and the merger. Peter looked up at the chairman. Merger? He asked, voice trembling. The chairman clapped gleefully. Fantastic news, he hooted. A regrettable number of your colleagues passed away or were fired. Well, sometimes opportunity knocks in a mourner's veil, as they say. We used the liquidity generated from the savings on salaries to merge with Channel 12. We're rebranding as 512. Now, whether to keep you or Strasbourg, my boy, well, we'd already paid for the order of cutouts of yourself, so it was a fait accompli. Strasbourg has taken a job consulting. You'll be presenting his show, The Seven, which we're branding The Seven live with Peter Quinnell. You can choose any executive producer you like, except Judith Senyal, because... <laughs> he chuckled heartily. Well, you can choose her when the police have finished with her. The lawyers chuckled too. When they were gone, Peter slumped back into bed and stared up at the white expanse above his head. In the well-lit room, the corners where the ceiling met the white walls were barely visible. The white seemed to go on and on, thick, distant and creamy, as though if Peter tilted his head back far enough, he might see the rock and the door from the white cliff once again, and that if he just called out to it, the faraway man might once again poke his head through and talk to Peter. And maybe this time he'd tell him something he needed to know. He stared at the ceiling and thought about what the chairman had told him and about how maybe, maybe, maybe the chairman was right. Because after all, why wouldn't he be? He was a chairman and one with sensational legal representation. Peter had been through trauma after all, and maybe his ability to say for sure whether or not it was bad that those people had died was compromised. Maybe it would be better if he trusted someone else to decide. Peter had always trusted in institutions. It seemed that nowadays institutions were undervalued. To trust in individuals to make decisions about things like life and death, good and bad, right and wrong, was absurd. To decide the outcomes of questions such as the ones Peter found himself wrestling with needed the steady hand of an august and ideally wealthy institution. The government, the police, the press. Peter's heart swelled a little with pride as the chairman's words of congratulations played through his mind again. Consider the trust that had been placed in him. He stood on the shoulders of giants. Each day the giants climbed higher and grew taller, zigzagging up and up, their success the only evidence of their trustworthiness that was needed. The memory of his long road was beginning to fade. He turned his head to one side and looked out the window. Grey clouds rolled over the city and rain began to lash down. Lightning flashed. On the city skyline, the enormous Channel 5 neon sign that topped the skyscraper downtown beamed out against the darkened sky, obscured slightly every now and then by the swinging arms of a pair of huge spindly cranes that lowered into position the new 12 logo. In the storm, the cranes swayed and laboured until at last they were secured. A man in a room somewhere flicked a switch and the twelve shone orange in the dark. It reminded Peter of a scene from his childhood, but he couldn't remember which one.
That was The Horse and the Rider. It was written, read, and produced by me, Max Laverne. If you're hearing this, you've listened from part one to part 19, and I really can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Thank you for listening, and thank you if you've made a donation, or left a review, or recommended it to a friend. I want to acknowledge a few people who helped me a lot with this project, reading drafts and giving feedback. My friends Andy Friedhoff, Dana Thompson, Michael Atkin, and Warren Jones. I also want to give thanks to my wonderful wife Nicole, and my kids Emily and Miles, who are so great and help me so much every day. Thanks also to King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, whose album Polygondwanaland is all over this podcast. If you enjoy my writing, please take a look at my substack at infinitegossip.substack.com. And that's the end of the story. Bye.